you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to the book of Acts, chapter 6. Now, today we're, we're wrapping up this series, Leadership and Servanthood in the Church, and I'm going to throw out my entire uh, pre-sermon spiel this morning entirely and just give you a little bit of church history. We're talking about deacons today, the, the office of deacon within the church. Now, between the year 303 and 313, the most intense persecution the church ever experienced broke out. More intense than even when Nero, Emperor Nero, killed Paul and had Peter put to death. More intense than even that. The Roman Empire made up their minds that they were once and for all going to eradicate and extinguish this sect of Judaism they called Christianity. And they began to arrest anybody and everybody associated with the church. And they ended up arresting a couple of deacons. It's a true story. You can look this up. And the deacons were, their official position was called subdeacons. I don't know if that means they were junior deacons or just deacons who didn't hold portfolios in the church, something like that. Uh, they were Leaders in the church, though, they were servants. They were diakonos, is the Greek word, and we're going to learn that this morning. And the Roman officers took them aside and they said, look, we'll let you go. We'll let you live. We know you're not the readers. The readers were the people charged with protecting the word of God. You see, by the end of the 200s, the canon, what we call the biblical canon, uh, continuity and all that, the 27 books of the New Testament had been established. And it wouldn't be for some time before the actual official version of the Bible was what was being used, but for the most part, this is what was being used around the same time, okay? The same, pretty much the same books of the Old Testament, what they called the Tanakh, and the New Testament, the Matthew through Revelation that you have in your Bible was very similar to what they were using then. The only difference was it was written in Greek. And the readers were the ones who were in charge of protecting that. You understand what I'm getting at today is because of deacons who were faithful to the church, we have this. That God put these men in that position to make sure they ensured the safety of Scripture. Because when Roman, uh, the Roman soldiers took them aside, they said, look, we'll let you live. We know you're not the readers. We know you don't know where the Bible's at. We don't, you don't know where the manuscripts are. We, we know you don't know where Paul is, but you know who does. Give us the name of the readers, and we'll let you live. And you know what they said? Two words. Kill us. We're not going to give it up. We're not going to give it up. They believed in the importance of Scripture. They believed in the power of the Word of God. They were willing to lay down their lives for it. Two deacons. Two, what we would call board members, were so zealous for the Lord and the word of the Lord, they gave their lives for it. And that's why we have Scripture the way we have it today. To me, that, I, I don't know about you, but I hear that story, and that's powerful. That We take this for granted so often. We forget that all throughout church history, so few people have ever actually had access to, to the Word of God. And in America alone, we have over a hundred English translations. We take that for granted. But again, we got it. We have it because people are willing to bleed and die for it. 
Now, as we've gone through this series and we're wrapping this up today, talking about deacons, we want to look again at the the heartbeat of this series we find in uh, Romans 15. It says, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. We have no problem being of the same mind. We do value Scripture. At least here at Faith we do, and the chances are you're here at an assembly of God church. You have similar theology. 1 Corinthians 1.10 says we should be teaching the same thing, preaching the same thing, being about the same message. That's not too hard when we all pretty much agree on everything, right? We're of the same mind. We're from the Midwest. We have the same, similar values, typically, right? But here's where it gets hard. It says, so that with one accord, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That phrase, one accord, that's where it gets hard. That's where churches split. That's where marriages fall apart. That's where homes break. That's where the workplace becomes unbearable because we're not in one accord. You recall it's the Greek word homothamadon, and it's a complex Greek word. Basically, it just means we are breathlessly, breathlessly, breathlessly pursuing the same goal. We are passionate about the same thing. And so today we wrap this up looking at the office of deacon. In the local body of believers, there are two offices Scripture firmly puts in place in the local assembly, and it is that of the overseer, the elder, the pastor. That's, that's one position, many words for the same guy, same person, and the office of the deacon. Now, some context for this immediate Scripture in Acts chapter, uh, Acts chapter 6, uh, Pentecost had come and gone. Peter had gotten up and given his message. He had exegeted Joel chapter 2, and he had preached a message, and 3,000 were added to their number that day. The church is growing. Acts chapter 2 ends by saying the church continued to grow. The Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Peter and John, and John, uh, sorry, in Acts chapter 3, they had been arrested. They'd, they'd raised up a lame man in the name of Jesus. They'd healed him, and they'd went on preaching, and they were told not to, and then they were arrested again, and they were told not to. And, and Peter stood up, and he said, we must obey God rather than men. And they get flogged for it, but it doesn't phase them. Chapter 5 ends with these words every day in the temple, and from house to house they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. That's, the con- That's beautiful. The church is growing. We should be thankful for that, right? But with a growing church comes problems. We see this in our own church. We've, we've had our share of ups and downs. Sometimes it feels like we take three steps forward only to have two to take back. It happens when the church grows, and we see it in the early church. There, we come to chapter 6, and there were members of the church. They were called the Hellenistic Jews. These were Jewish people who had adopted the Greek language and much of Greek culture, and they began to complain because their widows, when, when food was being passed out at the potluck on the fourth Sunday of every month, that's a joke. We do a potluck on the fourth Sunday of every month here at Faith Assembly. But when the potluck or the, the food was being distributed, the widows were being abandoned. They weren't being given any food. So they began to uh, get upset about that. Now between 6 verse 1 and chapter 6 verse 2, something has taken place. Peter, James, John, they gather the boys together. They get the, the disciples together and they have had a meeting and they've figured out a course of action. It's not written down, but we can assume this is what they did. Because they didn't just willy-nilly decide to do this. There was a, a thought process to their action. 
And so we read in verse 2, beginning in verse Acts, uh, Acts chapter 6, verse 2, So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, like I said last week, uh, we're going to look at the qualifications of someone to be in this office, what they are to do, what their role is, and what the response of the congregation to the deacon is as well. Now, I'm not dividing it up like I did last week. It's just going to be the consistent themes running throughout this message. So uh, you don't want to blink, you might miss it, okay? But if we want to see God bring a revival to this church, whether it's through uh, an evangelist coming or just God moving, we have to seek his formula in how we operate in his church. Amen? We want to be about God's business. We want to be about God's design. And God's formula for the board member or the deacon is very simple, as it has been throughout this entire series. We've seen a simple uh, formula for marriage, for the home, for the workplace, and for the church, and it continues today. You understand the church needs deacons who want to help, who rise to serve, and who aid the pastor in leading the church. That is their role. That is their position. The church needs deacons who want to help, who rise to serve, and who aid the pastor in leading the church. These men were, by the way, for the record, they weren't exactly the first church board. They are the prototype board. Okay, by the time we get to 1 Timothy 3, they've kind of established what a board should look like and what a deacon should should look like and do, and and we'll see that as we go. But from these men, these seven men, we're going to get the likes of a man called Stephen, who becomes the first martyr in the history of the church. If you recall the story of Stephen, it takes place in the next chapter of Acts. This guy named Saul of Tarsus, he decides he's going to hold everybody's coat so they can stone him properly, right? They drag him outside the city and they, they stone him to death. And then there's this guy named Philip. Philip's kind of a big deal in in the book of Acts. He's an evangelist. He leads the Ethiopian to Christ, Simon the sorcerer. He's part of that whole story in Acts chapter 8. He is an evangelist. He goes from town to town preaching the gospel and baptizing people. Now, on the other five, the Bible is almost completely silent. Almost. We have this guy named Prochorus. And again, Scripture doesn't say anything about him. Prochorus, sir. Prochorus, or however you want to say it. He is somebody church tradition tells us was one of, he was one of the 70 that Jesus sent out in Luke chapter 10. He was a traveling companion. He was a helper to Peter's ministry. And later he pastors a church in what's modern day Turkey in the city of Nicomedia. That's what church tradition tells us. Scripture's silent. Okay? Then there's this guy named Nicanor, and not much is known about him other than he died a martyr's death in the year 76 AD. Then there's this guy, his name's sometimes pronounced Timon, but I like to call him Timon because we know that he is the guy who sang with the warthog, right? Hakuna Matata and the Lion King. That is what he's known for. It's, that is literally all we know about it. No, that wasn't him. By the way, that was a meerkat and it was animated. So we know it's not true, right? He probably never heard the words Hakuna nor Matata. All right, but... We don't know anything else about this guy other than he's mentioned here in Acts chapter 6. Then there's this guy named Parmenas. 
And no, he did not invent Parmesan cheese. I looked. He did not. But church tradition tells us that he would go on into Asia Minor around uh, where the churches of Galatia were in that area, that region, and probably farther east, and he would die a martyr's death in the year 98 AD under the persecution of the Roman emperor Trajan. Then we come to this guy, Nicholas. He was a proselyte, we're told, from Antioch, and what that means is he was a Gentile who had converted to Judaism and then on into Christianity. He was someone who jumped from one religion to another to another. Think about that. Be cautious of such people, even though he probably did have at least seemingly a genuine conversion. But we do hear his name come up again in Scripture to the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. Jesus says, you hate the teachings of the Nicolaitans, and I also hate. We don't know much about the Nicolaitans, but one thing we do know is that Arrhenius, who was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, the John, John the Revelator, he writes in his book Against Heresies about a hundred years later, after the book of Acts was written, uh, within a hundred years, he writes, and this is actually, if you want to find it, it's, his book has been published even today and translated, uh, page 694, chapter 26. He says this, the Nicolaitans are the followers of that Nicholas who was one of the seven first ordained to the diaconate by the apostles. They lead lives of unrestrained indulgence. What he had begun to teach later, and teach his followers, was that your soul is saved, but your body you can do whatever you want with it. That you can experience any indulgence, and that's okay. And we know from Scripture that is heresy. That is an, that is a an apostasy. That is a damnable belief. That is not what Christ came and died for us at all. He came to free us from our sins, not to keep us a prisoner to them. Now you might say, well, Pastor Jeff, why do you bring all that up? Well, the point is, two of these deacons turned out pretty good. A few of them we don't know much more about. One of them turned out to be really bad. The fact is, sometimes the church gets it right, and sometimes the church gets it wrong. There's what Scripture commands. There's what Scripture records. And many times, Scripture records the failure of people. And so we see the early church is an example for us in that. That when we choose our deacons, we must be very careful. We must be very thorough. And we'll see that play out throughout this message today. But we do the best we can as we follow God's formula for His church. And in the office of deacon, what we see is the church needs deacons who want to help who rise to serve, and who aid the pastor in leading the church. And I'll break that down as we go. The first thing I want to look at is that the fact that deacons want to help. Back in verse 2, it says, So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Now the twelve summons the congregation of disciples. Who are the disciples? Well, they're the disciples of the disciples. They're the church. They're the early congregation. This is, this is who they were ministering to. And so they call their first annual church business meeting. That's what this is. We wouldn't call it that. Nobody would, looking back would say that. But that's really what it is. And that's what we do every February, right? We follow this formula. And verse 1 shows us the church was already very diverse. There were the native Hebrew born and bred 
Israel born and bred Jews who had become Christians. Remember, not many Gentiles had converted to Christianity at this point. Yeah, you had the Gerasene demoniac and you had the lady with the demon-possessed daughter and you had the Roman soldiers who maybe, but for the most part, the church was very Jewish. Later in Acts chapter 8, that's when they begin to expand into the non-Jewish territories. But there's the Hebrew born and bred, Israel born and bred Jews, and then there are the Hellenistic Jews. And I've already touched on them for a second here. I'll do it again. They are the Greek Jews. If we were to divide them into two categories, we would say the Hellenistic Jews were the liberals, the liberals, right? And the uh, Israeli Jews were the conservatives. Now, that's not a political statement. It's not even a theological statement necessarily, but the Hellenistic Jews, they were a little more Greek in their cultural practices. They were not as tied to the Old Testament law that the Israeli Jews or Israel-born Jews might have been. And the main focus, that their biggest complaint was that their widows were being left out. But the real problem was much deeper and much wider, and an astute reader would see that. There is division in the body. There is partiality in the body. James will later address the sin of partiality in his letter. But this is why Paul consistently, in his letters to the churches, urges church unity. It's why he insists that we are careful in how we love one another, how we speak to one another, how we as a church are together and in one accord with one another. Ephesians 4.31 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Why? Because it's divisive and it kills the church. He tells the Philippians, do all things without grumbling or disputing. The more diverse a church is, the more there will be division. The more the church grows, the more diverse it becomes, and the more division is spawned. The more there will be grumbling, disputing, and that leads to bitterness, anger, wrath, and even slander. When we understand that, when we read that in the book of Acts, what we see unfolding is the purpose of the deacon. The purpose of the board member and the primary function that we see, the the reason they're created is to bring unity to the body. One of the primary goals of the deacon is to bring unity in the body under the, the leadership of the church. Not to be divisive. Not to humor those things. Last week I mentioned Jude 16, which is a, Jude is addressing apostates in the church. He says these are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. People who nitpick, people who constantly bicker and complain, it is not the place of the deacon to humor those people, but to correct them, to bring about unity. And if the issue cannot be resolved, bring in another deacon. Bring it to the pastor. Get it settled. It is not done to lord over somebody. Hey, I'm on the board. You need to listen to me. It's not like that. It's not, hey, Pastor Jeff said this. You need to do it either. It's, this is what the Word of God says. We should squash division at its roots as soon as we hear it. The apostles go on. They say, it is not desirable for us to neglect the Word of God. In fact, uh, that word desirable is the Greek word areston. And it means it's not pleasing. That's how the LSB translates it. That it's not pleasing to God. That it's not right. They're not saying they're above the work. They're not saying I'm too good to wait tables or anything like that. They're not 
saying it's, they're just saying it's, their, it's not their primary function. It's not their calling. It's not their purpose in the church. They're not discounting ministry in other ways. They're not discounting ministry in other places. They're just saying, look, our first priority is to be about the ministry of the word. That should be the first priority of the church. But it's not the church's only priority. The support ministry is still ministry. The daily things that make the church run and function, those who do the little odd jobs and and things like that, other ministers within the church, they are equally Holy Spirit-filled and Holy Spirit-fueled ministries within the body. But the equality of the roles and offices are made clear by Luke here in Acts chapter 2. One operates in order to allow the other to operate in its fullest capacity. If you recall throughout this series, I've said numerous times, servanthood, submission, words like that in a biblical sense are not meant to be doormats or pushovers or you know the pastor's bully brigade or anything like that. That's not their purpose. Their purpose is to function in a way that allows those who are in ministry or those who are in their other role to function in the way God has called them to. In fact, it's the same word that Luke uses, that word to serve tables. It's the same word he uses later in verse 4 for ministry. It's the word diakoneo, and it means to serve. This is where we get the idea for deacon. Now, somebody told me that word is used over 800 times. I looked it up, it's more like 38, but it's still a lot. Used quite a bit. The idea of servanthood in Scripture is very clear. The, the deacon, the diakoneo, the diakonos, is a servant leader. To clarify, what is truthfully being said is that in the New Testament church, we see two vital ministries emerging here within the body of believers for the body of believers. The primary ministry is the word and prayer, and the two go together, by the way, the word and prayer, and the ministry and meeting of the needs of believers. I want to say this to, be, to, to make sure there's an understanding. The church often gets caught up in doing these community events and things like that, and that's good. We should do that. That's great. We should be a blessing to the community. We should be known as the church who's giving things out rather than always with our hand out wanting to take. But the first priority of the church is to look after the believers. If we do the food pantry thing and we gather in all this food for people in the community, but there are people within our church who are starving, who are going hungry day in and day out, we failed. You'll see later that we are to look after our own household. If there's someone within the church, if, you, if that's you and if you're watching online and this is you, if you're hurting for, for finances or for food, come and see me because I'll plug you in with a guy who is a financial guru. I, I really appreciate Wes and what he does with finances. And we'll try and help you get that settled. In the meantime, we'll get you some food too, if that's you. But that's the priority of the church. So early on, we see this design for the deacon position unfold. We see that they are servants. They are leaders who serve. In fact, that's the way diacono or diaconos almost always gets translated. Like I said, servant. They are here to help. They want to help. The apostles were probably pulling this idea, by the way, from an Old Testament principle from the book of Exodus, chapter 18. Moses' father-in-law, I like, anybody know his name? There we go. Good job, Gary. Jephthah, it's close to Jeff, as you're going to find in the Bible, I think. Maybe Jephthah, but I don't like him as much. But anyway, there's this guy Jethro. He's Moses' father-in-law, and he comes along, and he, he tells Moses, how to establish what we would call a board. 
He says, you shall select out of all the people, able men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain, and you shall place these over them as leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. Let them judge the people at all times, and let it be that every major dispute they will bring to you, but every minor dispute they themselves will judge. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you, not for you. Team effort. See, that made very clear. If you do this thing and God so commands, he goes on, he says, then you will be able to endure and these people also will go to their place in peace. Then you will be able to endure. I pointed this out last week and I hope I said this right, but when the pastor stays in the position of the church, well, it's really easy to see the longer he stays, the better the church does, the healthier the church is. And I I don't want to, uh, I hope I didn't make it sound like you know, you guys ran off pastors or anything in the past. That's not that was not my intention. I just want to make it clear they they left because they wanted to leave. But it's my hope that I I'm here for a long time, right? <laughs> Look at Georgette because Georgette brought up a good point on Wednesday night in Bible study. She said, you know, we've heard a lot of pastors say that. But what if God calls you? What if God calls you away? Well, that's very possible. It is. I believe God's called me here. And I don't believe he's calling me anywhere else right now. But it, I want to be very, very, very clear on this. It will have to be God to call me out of this position. Because I love Lisbon. I love this town. I love this church. I love the people. But please do not misunderstand me. As much as I love you guys, and as much as I love this community, there's one thing that is a bigger factor in all of it. I hate moving. Okay? I hate moving more than I love people. No, that's not true. Uh, (laughs) I absolutely hate moving. So it will have to be God's call. But back to the text. The apostles know their place is the ministry of the word, not serving tables. And again, they're not saying they're above serving tables. They're simply saying that their time is better suited to their calling, to their purpose. It would distract them from their main goal, their main task, which was the ministry of the word. In a sense, what they're truly saying, if we understand them, is that they needed help. They needed people who were going to come along and do what needed to be done in order for the church to continue to grow, for the gospel to be preached. And so they understood their limits. Every leader, and I mean every leader, not just the pastor, not just the deacon, every leader must know their own limits. Proverbs speaks to this quite a bit, actually. Specifically in Proverbs 27, it says, Know well the condition of your flocks, and pay attention to your herds, for riches are not forever, nor does a crown endure to all generations. In other words, you need to know your limits. The apostles knew this. And if they were to carry on, and they were to be doing the work of the ministry of the church, as Christ had directed them, they needed helpers. They needed servants. They needed deacons. So they're asking for help. They needed men who would rise to serve. We read on in verse 3, it says, Therefore, brethren, select from yourselves, uh, or select from among you, seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. Notice he says, Select from among yourselves, or from among you, men of good reputation. We're going to break that down. Right out of the gate, what's the word he uses? Select, right? The word select is one of those really hard Greek words. I'm not even going to attempt it. But it's, a, it's another one of those pesky compound words that sends a message. 
the, the beginning is from the word epa, which means to look, and the second word is skopos. So episkopos, and then there's a bunch of other letters behind it. So the idea of skopos is where we get the English word scope or skeptic. And the, the implication of the word is when you go to select these men, you will see them and understand they, they seem to have the appearance of someone who would be qualified, but then you go and investigate further. Get down deep into their lives and understand who you're picking. Carefully evaluate their life. You're not just throwing a warm body into the position. We don't want to do that. A deacon is to be selected from within the church, not called from somewhere else and not sent from somewhere else. He or she is to be taken from the assembly of believers who call this their church, the local body. Now where the idea of seven comes from, we're not entirely sure. There are those who say, well, it's a holy number. It's a number of completion that has nothing to do with this text. More than likely, it comes from a Jewish tradition. Josephus records this. He's the Jewish historian, and he uses Deuteronomy 16.18, which talks about taking men and placing them over a city in order to maintain structure. And he theorizes that seven men were, were typically chosen, and so that it's possible that this is what the apostles were doing. But the idea of seven men, it just doesn't seem, it, it doesn't seem to be relevant in this portion. It doesn't have any ties to that. But the idea of them being men... And it definitely is men, uh, not men or women, not men and women. In this passage, it is definitely picking men. Now, I said last week we are not complementarian. We are an egalitarian fellowship. And that means that men and women can hold the the similar offices. And that's still true. In this portion, they wanted men, but that does not mean that women cannot be board members, and we'll see that as we go. In fact, I would just say that we have had two women board members since before I was the pastor of Faith Assembly of God, and both of them have been very faithful and very helpful in their time on the board. I know some churches, even churches who allow women on staff, they will not allow women to be on the board. And I understand their logic. I don't agree with their logic. I understand the scripture they use for that. I don't agree with their interpretation of it. Again, we are egalitarian. And if you personally don't agree with female deacons, then you'd have a really hard time when you get to Romans 16, because Romans 16.1 begins saying, I commend to you our sister, and it's definitely sister, not brother, Phoebe. Phoebe's a woman's name, right? I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a deacon of the church, which is at Sancreia. The word servant is how it typically gets translated, but she was a deaconess, is the PC way of saying it. It does not seem that Paul had any problem with women deacons, but the church definitely had problems with bad deacons. So you've heard me say, I don't have a problem with women pastors, I have a problem with bad preachers. There's a difference. Just because someone's a woman preacher doesn't mean she's a bad preacher, and just because somebody's a bad preacher doesn't make them a woman. At least I don't think it works that way. I haven't looked up the the current state of affairs in the left, but the church did have problems with bad deacons. I mentioned 3 John last week, the sneaking deacon Diotrephes. That's what I like to call him. John says in verses 3 and 10, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I'll call attention to his deeds, which he does unjustly, accusing us with wicked words, and not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren. 
either, and he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. Like I said, I called him a sneaking deacon. He could have been an elder. He could have been a pastor. But deacon rhymes with sneaking, and it always sounds catchy. Okay? Diotrephes was a leader in the church, and he is an example to us of someone who is given a position, deacon or not. He is an example of power left unchecked. And so he is a warning to us. Again, he is something that Scripture records, not commands. This is one reason the apostles wanted men of good reputation, not just good character. Character is who you are, but reputation is built upon a lifestyle of character, on how you've acted, how you've treated others in the past. Again, Proverbs speaks to this. Proverbs tells us the importance of good character. Proverbs 22 says, A good name is to be desired more than great wealth. Favor is better than silver and gold. As Charles Spurgeon said it, a good name is better than a girdle of gold. And when that is gone, what has a man left? In other words, if a man's belt's taken away, what happens? Well, he's exposed, right? That's what Spurgeon's getting at. Luke goes on. He says they must be men full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Now, we're going to break this down as we look at Paul's qualifications in 2 Timothy 3. And we're going to try and fly through these because I don't want to take all your day today, but... He writes, he says, deacons must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine and or fond of sordid gain. Now, these, I want to be very clear. When Paul says this, this is who the deacons are to be, not what they're to become. This is not what they do. This is establishing their character. We do not pick deacons the way the NFL drafts a quarterback. Well, he's got a really high ceiling, and if we let him sit on the board for a few years, he might develop into something good, right? We don't do that. This is not the NFL. This is God's church. And so he says that they are to be men of dignity. Now, again, this is a tie back to their reputation. This is their character. This is who they are. These would be men who have good minds, good character, a reputation for not being flippant, but having a sense of honor about themselves. They're not to be double-tongued. In other words, they're not saying something outside the church. They're not saying in the church and vice versa. Their speech is not hypocritical, but consistent and honest. Now, we know people can change their minds, and people can be somewhat fickle at times too, but they can also learn and they can grow. But is this a consistent character? Are they tossed about by every wind of doctrine? Are they a consistent Christian? Are they stable? Or are they constantly on this roller coaster of faith that they shouldn't have? They're not not to be addicted to too much wine or fond of sordid gain. Now this is a similar qualification that we saw with the elders last week. Deacons have to be clear-headed. They have to be uh, able to use their position not for personal gain, but for the gain of the church. Drunkenness and desire for wealth make a man corruptible, by the way. Easily corruptible. And through such people, we see even now in our modern society, we see the church being influenced by the world rather than influencing the world for the cause of Christ. So we go on, verse 9, it says, But holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now when Paul uses that phrase, mystery of the faith, and he does it often, uh, at least three times, Romans 11.25, Ephesians 1.9, Colossians 2.2, just to name a few of them, it's typically in reference to a mystery he's already discussed or, or unveiled in his writing, and it's 
something that he wants to reference back to. In this case, what Paul is doing, he's referring back to the mystery of the incarnation of Christ. He says it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. And he fleshes this out. He says, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. The mystery that the deacon is to hold to is the gospel itself. To hold on to it with a clear conscience, knowing that they have fully accepted it, they've been enveloped by it, and it is at the core of who they are as a believer. Paul goes on in verse 10, he says, These men must also first be tested and let them serve as deacons if they're beyond reproach. Now this idea of being tested goes back to skopos, episkopos, being investigated, uh, much like we see in Acts chapter 6, their character, their service. What is the fruit of their life? Matthew seven sixteen says, You will know them by their fruit. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles. So we examine the fruit of their life. What do we see? Do we see consistent Christian character? Or are their fruits something bad? Are their fruits illegal? Are they criminals? Are these bad people? Because the idea of their being beyond reproach is similar to we see that we see with the elder last week, the overseer. Are, there, are they being held in a criminal sense? Then he goes on, he says this. This has caused a lot of, uh, we'll just say arguments within the church. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. So he's clearly saying women should be board members, right? No, not really. We need to examine this. Okay, not here. Context matters. You guys have heard me say context is king. The Greek word used here is the plural form of the word gyne, and it could be understood as women, but really here in the context, it's the wives of the deacon. Wives refer to the wives of the serving deacon. I will tell you this, and I have saw this happen in many of my friends' lives who we graduated Bible college together and they married the wrong person. A wife can make or break a man's ministry. The same goes for the husband. A husband can make or break the ministry of a wife. But that's not to say these qualifications are not adaptable. Paul's teaching in other places, like I mentioned Phoebe, it's the, women of, the role of women in ministry is not construed as prohibiting them from serving as, pa- as, as pastors or deacons, anything like that. What he's saying is, if it's good for the gander, it's good for the goose. Okay? So it may focus on the husband and his wife, but the qualifications are interchangeable for the position of deacon. Specifically here, these wives should not be malicious gossips. The word used here is actually the word diabolos. It's where we get this, the, the Spanish word diablo. Who's that reference? The devil. Gary, you are firing on all cylinders today, man. Good job. Why? Because he's a slanderer. He's a speaker of false accusations, the father of lies. Diabolos. These women, these wives, these spouses of the deacons are not to be slanderers. It disqualifies their husband from the office. That is to say, women and and men deacons also do not falsely accuse or slander. If the deacon goes home, this is just an example. This has not happened here, okay? If a deacon goes home and he tells his wife, man, the church really needs to do some better landscaping. And we talked about landscaping at the board meeting the night for two hours. Golly, he goes, we, 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 need, we need to make sure we get on that. 
And then the wife the next day goes around town saying, well, the pastor don't know how to work a lawnmower. That's why it looks like that. There's a problem, right? For the record, I do know how to operate some lawnmowers. Joke, self-deprecating. That's fun. Paul says they have to be temperate, which is, that's to say they're to be vigilant, watchful, clear-headed. They must exercise good discernment. Discernment is lacking in the church because it's lacking in the leadership of churches. And they must be faithful in all things, not just when they feel like it. Quick to be present, wanting to help when, when and where they can. Paul goes on, and this is the last thing. He says, deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. Again, this idea, just like last week, it's not talking about if a man was divorced and remarried or anything like that. They have to be good managers of their household. They have to be spiritually and sexually pure in their, in their homes. I would point out that Paul will soon write to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.8, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now he's talking about finances there, obviously financials, but it also applies. If you're not overseeing your own household, how can you be trusted to look after the people of God? Right? How can you be trusted to rise to serve in the church when you can't rise to serve in your own home? They must be trustworthy. They must be reliable. The, the apostles go on and they say, whom we may put in charge of this task. They have to be trusted with the task. People that can be uh, relied upon. Someone the apostles could count on to do the job and do it well and do it thorough and do it right. Jesus speaks of this too in, in Luke 16.10. He says, he who's faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who's unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Faithfulness matters in the church. It really does, especially in leadership. This is not just the qualifications of a deacon, but the qualifications of a mature Christian. At the bare minimum, a deacon has to be a mature Christian. And at the bare minimum, a deacon should want to be active in the church, present in the church, attending Bible study, prayer meeting, men and women's Bible study, and not just because they're a fan of the pastor, but because they want to show their commitment to the church. Now, I say that, and I want to be clear, I want to quantify that, not to pick on anybody. I know we have some board members who have family outside of town. We have some who are farmers who work, and they're not able to. That's understandable. We have some who are going to the mission field. But I know for all five of our deacon board, if I had a need or needed someone to help me with something and I called them, they would proverbially, proverbially I can't, wow, I can't talk, <laughs> bend heaven and earth to make sure they were there. They are reliable people. I know there are times where I say, hey, Joel, the basement's flooding, and he'll show up. Dale will say, hey, I, I'm actually in bed already. Can I come tomorrow? Yeah, I got it. It's cool. No, I'm kidding. Dale's usually on the board. He is right there. I can say that about all of them. Dale's sleeping. That's why he didn't respond. But that's what leaders do. That's what servant leaders do. They rise to serve, and they do it from a point of love. Love for the church. Love for God. Love for His Word. Love for His structure. That's what it means to rise to serve. And finally, we see deacons who aid the pastor. This is the big part of their job. This is really the enveloping call. Because verse 4 reads, if you want to go back to Acts chapter 6, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. What they're saying is we will devote ourselves to prayer. 
Part of the purpose of a deacon position is to be established in order to free up the pastor for his own self-care, for his own personal care. They say, we will devote ourselves to prayer. Why are they praying? Because they have to look after their own spiritual growth, their own spiritual lives, if they're going to be able to do the same for people within the church. Prayer was always encouraged. The Apostle Paul always wanted the church to be praying. Ephesians 6.18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. Colossians 4.2, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. And if the church is to do it, how much more so the pastor? John Stott once said, every true prayer is a variation on the theme, thy will be done. If we want God's will done in the church and in the community, and we believe it is not God's will that any should perish, that's what 2 Peter tells us, 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord's not slow about his promise, but is patient toward you, not wishing any should perish, then there must be prayer in the lives of the pastor as much as in the church. If the pastor is able to equip the saints, like we saw in Ephesians 4.12, equipping the saints for the work of service to build up the body of Christ, he himself has to be equipped. This is done first and foremost through prayer. This is what Christ modeled for us. Luke 5.16, Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. Now, if Jesus needed time away to get away and pray and spend time with the Father, so must the pastor. And the deacons make that happen. The deacons make that possible. If I were to get sick or go on vacation uh, or just have to be out of town for a long conference, whatever the case is, I have to be able to trust that the deacons, Randy, Lolly, Dale, Joel, and Mindy, can handle things while I'm gone. And I, I do. In my absence, they have to be, I have to be able to trust that the church isn't going to miss a beat, that it's going to continue on as if I was here. I know some churches, pastors gone, chaos follows. It's like the Benny Hill, you know, the bugle thing. It's just people going everywhere, chaos. We can't have that. In a sense, the deacon is to be the armor bearer of the pastor. Now, that's a 90s buzzword if you ever heard one. How many of you know what an armor bearer is or have heard that phrase before? A few of you, yeah? The armor bearer in the Old Testament was the guy who carried all the warrior's arrows, his swords, his spears, an extra shield depending on the situation. And these guys were almost as tough as the warriors they traveled with. And they were fiercely loyal to the warrior. See, they got the idea. These two men, the the warrior and his shield bearer or his armor bearer, they got the idea of being in one accord very quickly. They had to be. They had to be in lockstep with one another, pursuing the goal through the battlefield. Because if they didn't do their part, if the the armor bearer didn't do his part, or the warrior didn't do his part, neither of them were going to survive the battle. They didn't argue, they didn't banter. The armor bearer followed the warrior's lead into the thick of the fighting and trusted the warrior was going to come out on top and would do all he could to ensure that would happen, often fighting alongside along the way. That's leadership and servanthood perfectly intertwined in Scripture, by the way. That's the pastor. That's the deacons. That's the husband. That's the wife. That's the boss. That's the employee. That's the father and the child that we've seen throughout this series. We're in the fight together. If they don't survive, we don't survive, and vice versa. I look at Jonathan and his armor bearer, 1 Samuel. In his armor bearer, have this famous victory over the Philistines. Now, it's 
more than likely the warrior would knock somebody down and the armor bearer would be the one that finished them off. They were the ones together who would win the battle and slaughter the enemies. But look at their pre-fight conversation between Jonathan and his armor bearer. I love this story. They're getting ready to take on the Philistines and it's just two men versus hundreds. Jonathan said to the young man who was carrying his armor, come and let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us for the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. That's faith. That's, That's the visionary leader if you ever saw one, right? And this is what his armor bearer said to him. This is 1 Samuel 14, by the way. Do all that is in your heart. Turn yourself, and here I am with you according to your desire. Now, Jonathan was the son of a wicked king. And in Saul's life, Saul was his father. The wheels were coming off. People were starting to see the crazy leak out his ears, right? And most people would have saw Jonathan and saw this crazy situation and said, you got to be out your mind. There is no way we can take these guys. But instead, this guy looks at Jonathan and he says, let's do it. Let's roll. I'm with you. I got your back. Let's fight. Church, hear me on this. We need watchmen and we need warriors. But in the church, we need armor bearers all the more. Let me cover this last part of verse 4 and I'll begin to wrap things up. And to the ministry of the word, they said, this is the other part of their function. Hear me on this. When we, this is, this is part of the design for the leadership of the church. And when we dishon, or sorry, when we, getting ahead of myself, dyslexia kicks in, I guess. I don't know. We dishonor God when we disrespect our deacons. When we disrespect our deacons, we disregard the pastor. All of these are part of God's plan for leadership within the church. Now read it backwards. When we disregard the pastor, we disrespect the deacons. And when we disrespect the deacons, we dishonor God. Think about that. I'm not saying because I'm the pastor, I'm above reproach or anything. You've heard me say this. Be a Berean. Test it. I don't have a problem explaining the math, the method behind the madness and vice versa. And I'll get into that as we go. But it is his plan for the church. Not mine, not yours that matters, not ours. His. It is his church. I shared this last week, Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Even the deacons, I say even the deacons, especially the deacons, they will be held accountable for how they help run the church. Let them do this with joy, the writer goes on, and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Again, this does not mean that it's wrong to ask questions or to ask for an explanation or to approach a board member and say, what's the method behind the madness or the madness behind this method? Be, be a Berean. I encourage that. If you come on Wednesday night, I definitely want you to ask questions and, and think about things that are preached and taught. But when it comes to those who lead, they should do it with joy. Many times, the position of deacon gets forgotten entirely or wrongly interpreted, and frankly, it gets abused. But when I think of deacons, if you want to look for a great example other than an armor bearer, many times the illustration used is Moses' brother Aaron and the guy with the most feminine name in all of the Bible, this guy named Her. Some of you will get that joke later. When Israel's fighting against the Amalekites, Joshua leads them into battle. But Moses, Aaron, and and Hur, they go up on this hill. And they find that when Moses raises his staff, 
Israel starts to win. And actually, Exodus 17, 11 says, So it came about when Moses held his hand up that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hands down, Amalek prevailed. So what happens? Aaron and Hur get a rock and they let Moses sit down, but they hold his hands up until the battle is won. This is, like I said, this is used to illustrate what the deacon is to do within the church. While they serve under the pastor, they lead in the church. And it doesn't mean they're the pastor's accountability group. It doesn't mean they're his enforcers. Biblical servanthood, I'll say this one last time, biblical servanthood, biblical submission does not mean being a doormat or a pushover. It means aiding those who lead and helping them fulfill the role God has called them to. Church, if we want a real revival, we need people who are willing to stand beside leaders that God has placed over us and stand faithfully until the battle is won, until every home in this region has heard the gospel until we're standing room only on Sundays and Lisbon is a ghost town around town because the churches are overflowing and the bars are shutting down. Pray for your leadership this morning. Encourage the deacons who rise to serve in order for your pastor to do the ministry in the church and in the community as well. Like I said, I promised I was going to close, so here it is. We're going to close. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on back up. Last week, I didn't ask anyone to pray for me because I wanted to pray for the church. But this week, I'm going to ask those who are on the board and those of you who have served on the board, I would ask you to come forward as well. We want to pray for you today. I'm going to ask the church family, to, not everybody at once, if you're on the board and want to, want to, well, don't mind doing this, I would like for you to come forward. I want to pray with you myself and ask the church family to pray for you. And we're going to have, I know Mindy's downstairs. She just came up. We're going to have her come up as well. And we're going to have the board come forward, and and as we sing and as we worship, I'm going to ask men to come forward, lay hands on our men, and pray, uh, ladies, to pray with our ladies. Let's pray for our church leadership this morning. Amen. Everybody, okay, waking up. That's good. All right. So we have Joel come forward as well. He's on the board, and we're just going to pray for our church leadership this morning as we worship. Sweet.